But I would love us to give a very warm storehouse welcome to Steve as he preaches here in the continuing in Mark. Good morning. Glad to be with everyone this morning. I actually have a long history or a long connection with Storehouse as well. Like for like two decades, I've had friends and family that have gone here, and I haven't uh, until this summer. My family started started attending uh, because, as Tasha said, I was I was on staff with other churches often. And then, in addition to that, I also I earn a living through commercial real estate. So I kind of done bivocational, they call it, for a lot of that. But no, I'm glad to be with you. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, yes, my mom is here and crying. It. <laughs> so uh, it's great. Thank you. Um, we're, as Tasha said, I mean, we're going through the book of Mark, or at least we're doing a, a, a quick skim of Mark, going through a series where we're looking at who is Jesus. And so week one of the series, Tasha asked that question. She opened with that question, who is Jesus? And then week two, she asked, uh, what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? And this week, we're going to look at what does Jesus want from us as his disciples? And so, who is Jesus? What does he want? That's what we're going to look at today. And, and consider that. As you come in, consider who do you think Jesus is? And maybe this is your first time setting foot into a church or, or turning on a, a church service online, and you don't know how to answer that question. We're glad that you're with us this morning. We're glad to have you this morning. Maybe you're on the other side of things, right? You've been coming to Storehouse for a very long time. You, you feel you really know who Jesus is, and, and, and you believe he's the Son of God. We're also glad that you're here. And there's all kinds of people in between, right, who are wrestling with, who is this Jesus? There's a lot of scholars who wrestle with, with this question, who is Jesus? One thing that I've noticed is when you're out with people and, you, and the name Jesus comes up, I don't know about you, but I feel oftentimes like people... They, they kind of feel like something's expected of them, right? I don't know if they feel like Jesus is expecting something of them or if they just expect more of themselves and they feel a little bit like, okay, I, I need to be a better person. What do you think? What does Jesus expect of you? What does he want from you? Does he want you to be a better person? Does he want you to be less sort of self-focused I know for my part, before I knew Jesus personally, I was pretty sure, and my dad was a pastor, and I grew up around Jesus in certain ways, uh, but before I knew him personally, I didn't know what he wanted. But I was pretty sure he wanted less. He wanted me to be less something, less sinful, less selfish, less ambitious, less hungrier. You know, I was very hungry as a, as a young adult, you know, pursue I wanted life. I wanted to grab it. And I was pretty sure following Jesus meant less fun. <laughs> but he wanted less. And it wasn't until later I realized that isn't it at all. <laughs> that is not it at all. Um, he actually came to bring more. And we will talk about that. But this morning, think about what do you think Jesus wants from you? In this morning's passage, Jesus calls himself Lord of the Sabbath. What on earth does that mean? <laughs> we're gonna, that's basically what we're going to talk about this morning, but we're going to start with the big idea, and it's this. It's not so much what Jesus 
wants from you, it's rather about who he is and what he had come to do. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, and he doesn't demand that you become less, less whatever. Rather, he has come to bring more, more fullness, more life, more strength, more joy, and more rest. Let's turn to Mark chapter 2, verses 23 through 28. Verse 23. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields and his disciples walked along. As, as they walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Let's open in a word of prayer. Lord, we come before you this morning. We thank you for your word. We pray that you would impress your word upon our hearts, that you would speak to us this morning, that it wouldn't be my words, but your word uh, being communicated. And anything that's from me just would, would pass by, but that you would speak to where each of us is individually sitting here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. What's your primary identity? How do you identify? Like what, what gives you a sense of value, a sense of worth, a sense of identity? Is it your work, your career? Maybe it's your, the work that you do to serve your family. Maybe it's your goodness, right? You feel, feel like you're a good person. You come to church, you do all the church things. That's your, you work really hard at your Christian faith. I think that we live in a culture where busyness gets associated with importance. And when we're busy, we feel like we have value, right? And so work versus rest is really a matter of identity. Often when we rest, we may feel like, we we may feel like this, like, oh, I am being irresponsible. I'm irresponsible if we rest, right? So we we keep ourselves busy because to rest, I feel I am irresponsible as a person. Or when we're working, we feel like, okay, I am doing my part. I do my part. And when we're busy meeting people's expectations, we feel like, okay, I am valuable. Well, in today's passage, Jesus conflicts with the Pharisees over this exact thing, the definition of work and rest. But the real issue at stake is one of identity, you see, because it's firstly about Jesus' identity and secondly about Jesus' disciples' identity. And so who is this Jesus? And what does he expect from his disciples? These are the questions. So today we're going to kind of frame the sermon in three parts uh, with three questions. What is Sabbath? What does it mean that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath? And how does Sabbath inform our identity? What is Sabbath? What does it mean that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath? And how does that inform our identity as his disciples. So, again, picture the story here. Jesus is walking through the grain 
through these grain fields. And, and think about this. Everywhere Jesus goes throughout the Gospels, and this was my, actually my first clue, and Tasha mentioned Young Life. In Young Life, I got clued into this. The, the guy talking would, would be like, everywhere Jesus went, people just flocked to him. That's not a dude who's about less fun, right? Everybody just, he's the most popular guy around. He can't get, he can't get away from the crowds. Anyway, so that's the picture. So he's walking through these grain fields. There's people all flocking to him, and his disciples are like having a snack. You know, they're just picking some grain, kernels of grains. And, and, and these Pharisees are like, they're breaking the law. Why are they doing what they're, why are they doing that? And so they ask Jesus, why is this happening? <laughs> We're going to look at Sabbath. Why do these Pharisees think this is breaking the law? And um, we're going to look at what the Sabbath is from three different perspectives. We're going to look at it from a scriptural perspective from the Old Testament. We're going to look at the Pharisees' perspective. And then we're going to look at Jesus' perspective. So there's a lot of passages in the Old Testament about the Sabbath. I mean, a lot. Like, a lot. Like, we could spend all semester talking about passages from the, from the Sabbath, about the Sabbath, and probably not exhaust the subject, right? You could, you could do a master's course in this. And um, what we should pick up from this is really important to God. God cares about the Sabbath. It's really important. And so the Pharisees thought it was important. But let's look at just two passages from the Old Testament. Genesis chapter 2. So Genesis 1, the very opening of the Bible, and there's six days of creation in Genesis 1. And Genesis 2 says this, Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had rested or had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Second passage we're going to look at comes from Exodus, which is the second book in the Bible, Exodus 31. And what you'll note is that The reason God calls his people to practice Sabbath is because he practiced Sabbath. And so as his image bearers, he asks us or or, or actually provides for us that we may act like God acts. We act as God acts, and that's why we practice Sabbath. And you'll also notice the penalty for breaking Sabbath in the Old Testament is death. So Exodus 31, starting in verse 14. Observe the Sabbath because it is holy to you. Anyone who desecrates it is to be put to death. Those who do any work on that day must be cut off from their people. For six days work is to be done, but the seventh day is a day of Sabbath rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day is to be put to death. The Israelites are to observe the Sabbath, celebrating it for the generations to come as a lasting covenant. It will be a sign between me and the Israelites forever. For in six days, note this, in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth. And on the seventh day, he rested and was refreshed. So he talks about a covenant between Israel and God. Jesus opens that up. Jesus as an Israelite opens that up for all the people of God. So that's a whole other sermon series. But um, that's how it kind of connects with us, this covenant extends to us. But the Sabbath is a really serious matter in the Old Testament, and, and it was, you know, the Pharisees took it very, very seriously. So let's talk about their perspective, the Pharisees' perspective. Well, let's start. <laughs> what is a Pharisee? Who are these guys? 
Well, they're the legal uh, and religious leaders of the day, but keep in mind that religion in Jesus' day, was, for, for Jews in Jesus' day, it was not a matter of personal preference or piety. It was a legal system, right? Like the United States Constitution. It is what identified the Jewish people as a nation. I mean, they, had been, they, were, they were being occupied by a foreign power, the, the Roman Empire at the time. And so what identified them was... God's law, you know, the, their, their religious law. And so these guys are really part of the legal court system, the, the Pharisees. And as I tried to, like, kind of think of, like, how they may have felt about the Sabbath, uh, I don't know how they felt. <laughs> but as I tried to, like, imagine this nationalism, I thought of the American flag, Right? It's a symbol. If you wear it on your shoulder, it's a symbol of your national identity. And if somebody were to burn a flag, say, uh, that has enormous symbolic power. And so when they come to Jesus and say, hey, why are your disciples eating kernels of grain on the Sabbath? That's kind of what they're... There's a symbolic power about what the disciples are doing that they're questioning. And scripture is really clear. God says, don't do work. We just read it in Exodus 31. No work on the Sabbath. What's less clear in scripture is what exactly defines work. What exactly constitutes work. And so the Pharisees actually had, I mean, while they had their strict lines, they also had a long tradition in history of debate. Where are the lines? How do we draw them up? What's work? What's not work? And so while they saw picking grain, you know, kernels of grain as work, Jesus may not have. And so they invite him into this debate. Of course, they're sorely disappointed. He had no interest in joining the debate. In fact, he answers with this very kind of weird reference to David. And you're like, what does this mean? What does this mean? And what we're going to see and I think the Pharisees got it, what we're going to see is that Jesus was pointing to his own personal authority over the Sabbath. I mean, he says it, right? I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. But he was pointing to the transition of power from King Saul to King David and relating it to what was happening in that grain field, saying there's a power shift happening here, and I'm not entering your debate because I have the authority which is pretty offensive to the Pharisees. But let's reflect on Jesus' response, okay? So his perspective on Sabbath, and ultimately, as I say, he presented himself as a new power structure. So when the Pharisees um, ask him, he, he points to King David. And so verse 25, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need. In the days of Abiathar the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. So what's he talking about? This story comes from 1 Samuel. And so you remember, the Israelites come out of Egypt, they enter the promised land, and for about 400 years, they're ruled by judges. Uh, and Samuel is the final judge. And the people of Israel go to Samuel at some point and say, look, Samuel, we want a king like all the other nations have. They have aren't like organized armies and they can defend themselves and go to war and all these things. And so we want a king who will do those things for us. And they pick Saul. 
Saul was a, tall, a head taller than everybody else. He looked royal. He looked like a king. They're like, yeah, we want that guy. He looks, he looks the part. And so they pick Saul as their king, and God approves it. But then God winds up rejecting Saul. And that's in 1 Samuel 15. He rejects Saul, and he anoints David in 1 Samuel 16 as king. And David, in 1 Samuel 13, says that David was a man after God's own heart. So Saul, the the, the Bible presents Saul as the people's choice and David as God's choice. But keep in mind, you can't have two kings, right? So that creates conflict. And of course, Saul's response is to try to kill David. So that brings us to Jesus' reference in 1 Samuel 21. He references when David flees and runs away from Saul, he goes to the town of Nob and goes to Ahimelech, the high priest. Now, when he gets there, he actually lies to Ahimelech. Ahimelech says, whoa, whoa, why are you here by yourself? This is weird. I don't like it. And David says, well, Saul sent me. So Ahimelech's like, okay, well, if King Saul sent you, then I'll help you out. And so he takes some bread, and he he escapes. Well, when Saul arrives, he hears that Ahimelech helped David, and he kills him. And he kills the whole town. Men, women, children, even the livestock, he genocides the whole town. It It was a bad situation. It was real life. Let's take a quick aside. I do want to mention that... Um, You may be wondering, like, Ahimelech, who's this guy Ahimelech, and why does Jesus talk about Abiathar? Uh, Because Jesus says Abiathar is high priest. Well, Abiathar was Ahimelech's son. And so when Ahimelech was killed, when Saul killed Ahimelech, Abiathar became high priest. But again, keep in mind, Jesus' focus here is the transition of power from King Saul to King David And Abiathar is the high priest kind of throughout, he's the priest throughout that period, and he's the high priest during David's reign. So that's that's the emphasis here. And when Jesus tells this story, I I think the Pharisees get it, right? I mean, the Pharisees, he's constantly saying things that uh, really kind of get under their, get them upset. They wind up putting them to death. Uh, But he's saying, look, back in the days of David, King Saul was the people's choice. David was God's choice. I'm David. I'm the new authority. I'm the new king. I'm the new power coming in and taking over. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. And as we read this story, Mark put it in here for us. Mark put this story in the Bible for the church, for the body of Christ, or those who are listening in. And there's a question for us. Who is Lord over my rest? Who is Lord over my rest? Where do I turn for rest? And wherever we turn, Jesus says, I want to replace that. I want to replace that power in your life because I myself and the true path to rest. I myself am Lord of the Sabbath. And so what does that mean? 
That brings us to our second point. What does it mean that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath? In this story, Jesus is focused more on the overarching purpose of Sabbath rather than legal debate. He doesn't enter into the debate. Uh, Look at verse 27. He says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. You see, God did not create you and me to serve his law. Rather, he gave us the law to serve humanity, to serve us, to serve his people. And the Sabbath, from Jesus' perspective, he is Lord of the Sabbath because he understands that Sabbath is really about recreation. It is a time of restoration. It is a time to be made full in the image of who God made us to be. He's bringing more, not less. He's bringing fullness, and he does the work. So Mark put this section of Scripture in between a larger context. So let's take a quick look at that larger context because it really helps to flesh out what Jesus understands as Sabbath. If you go to the passages right before our passage, there's a couple of conflicts again with the Pharisees. Jesus is eating with tax collectors and the Pharisees are like, hey, why are you eating with sinners? And then Jesus isn't fasting and, they, and it's actually not the Pharisees, it's, it's John the Baptist who's an awesome guy and he says, why, why, aren't, they, why aren't they fasting? Your disciples fasting. And Jesus' answer is like, guys, because it's time to party. The fullness has come. The fullness is here. There is new wine. There is a wedding feast. Yeah, I'm partying with sinners because it's time to party. That's what came just before. And then when you follow our narrative, there's immediately following is another passage on Sabbath where Jesus heals a man's hand on the Sabbath because he's restoring that man's hand so that the man's body functions the way God intended. That's followed by Mark summarizing Jesus' ministry, saying he healed many. And he even gave that healing power to his disciples so that they could also heal. So what does Sabbath mean? Sabbath, these Sabbath passages are right in the middle of this larger context. It's, it's party time, Healing that restores people to the fullness of the image that God intends, the full use of their potential. Sabbath means fullness, ultimately. It's a, it's a restoring to your full potential. It is your life being recreated into the fullness God intended. And so Jesus presents himself here as the Lord of the Sabbath, and he says elsewhere in Matthew 11, he says, Come to me. All you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Listen, God is not your taskmaster. God is not the taskmaster. If you're like me, the real taskmaster is the restlessness of my own heart. And Jesus says, I am here to replace that restlessness. I'm here to replace that taskmaster with true restoration and fullness. And so we ask again, who is Lord of your rest? And this brings us to our third point, to consider our own identities. How does Sabbath inform our identity? Where do you find your identity? What makes you feel valuable and valued? 
a number of years ago, I was uh, discussing the gospel with a friend, and I said, well, you know, following Jesus is kind of like giving up the driver's seat to Jesus, right? You know, you like, you take the passenger seat and you let him drive. And uh, my friend <laughs> responded, he said, um, well, I've been driving the car of my life for 24 years, and I think I'm doing a really good job of it, so I'm going to keep doing that. <laughs> Maybe that's you, right? Maybe that's you. Uh, you like the rules because you do really well within the system, and he does well within the, he's still, I think, of the same mindset, and that was, you know, 25 years ago or something, and, uh, you know, he does really well, but it's hard to rest when you're driving all the time. It's hard to rest, and you might think, that's okay. I'll rest when I arrive. I'll rest when I get here in my life or there in my life when I achieve this goal. But if you're like me, you never arrive. You never arrive. You achieve the goal, you know? You you set your heart on a goal, you get it, and your heart immediately jumps to the next goal. It never settles. It never settles. Even John D. Rockefeller, who according to Google, by 2019 dollars, his net worth was $418 billion. Not million, but billion with a B. $418 billion. And he's very, there's a very famous piece about him where like some reporter or somebody asked him like, well, Mr. Rockefeller, how much is enough? And he very famously said, just one more dollar. Just one more dollar. It's the taskmaster of our hearts is so ambitious that it never allows us to rest. Enough is never enough. And achieving our goal never satisfies, right? Our heart just demands more. It demands the next thing, the next shiny object. And so we, we, we can often oscillate. We go from like working ourselves to exhaustion to like we're, we're exhausted. So we like switch and we like reach out for escape, through television or video games or social media or, you know, shopping or food or alcohol or pornography or whatever it is. I mean, actually, there's no end to the vices, right? There's no end to what our hearts set themselves on. And I don't stand above these things. I mean, I, I can fall into those patterns as well as anyone. But neither working to reach our goal nor escaping gives us that fulfillment, gives us that renewal where we can find rest. And ultimately, we only come to rest when we find our rest in the Lord, the Lord of the Sabbath. As Augustine says in his confessions, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. You see, the human heart is enslaved to sin. I mean, yours and mine alike. We were born into that sinful... I actually... You know, people talk about hell. They don't like to talk about hell. But I think, you know, and the Bible describes hell as like this fire that never goes out or this worm that never dies. I think this is it. I think, actually, the Bible makes a good case, or, or if you interpret the Bible, I think there's a good case to be made that... Hell is just that burning desire that you can't satisfy. It's like drug addiction. The more you get, the more you need. And it never satisfied. And that's the sinful heart. That's the heart that doesn't allow us to, to rest. 
And so we relentlessly chase after something, some achievement, some completion, some arrival that never comes. Because ultimately, we're chasing after some identity. We're trying to discover who we are. And we're chasing after an identity that's always eluding us. And even when we achieve our goals, we're not satisfied. Just like Rockefeller, there's just one more dollar. If I can just get that next one, I'll be satisfied. What is that dollar for you? What is that dollar? But we can't rest until the work is finished and we've arrived. But the work is never finished. There's always more to do, more to achieve. And so we can't really rest until we find our rest in Jesus' sufficiency of the cross. God invites us to rest in his rest. Remember Genesis 2. God rested on the seventh day, and he's saying, enter my rest. Enter into my rest. And the problem is that sin tore us away from that rest, and sin's curse is that we must work in order to live, to survive. That's what happens from sin. But on the cross, Jesus finished the final work and faced the final death under sin's curse. So dying on the cross, Jesus' final words were, it is finished. It is finished. And so Jesus, he's not expecting more from you. More and more. It's never enough. That's not Jesus. He's not expecting more from you. Actually, Jesus gave his life in order to give you life. He gave up his life in order that your life would be full and that you would experience something that John D. Rockefeller never experienced and guys like Vladimir Putin never experience. And that's enough. Enough. Jesus finished his work and it's enough. It is all we need to be made whole and restored to our fullest purpose. And again, all around Jesus comes fullness, right? And we think we got to work so hard to achieve, achieve, to make ends meet. I got to tell you, from personal experience, and I had uh, I had been divorced a number of years ago, and I was raising my children on, on my own for a long time. And I was a pastor at one point and making no money, and so I had no money. And uh, God always provided. And it was crazy because it became, <laughs> anytime I had like a little extra money, I'm talking like $500 extra or something or $300 extra, I'd, be, I'd start to feel some relief because I wasn't like living paycheck to paycheck. But immediately, something would go wrong. Like an appli- it was always appliances. I got a microwave, a dishwasher, a uh, hot water heater. They, they all broke in this period of time. But I always had just enough money. And it started to happen so routinely that anytime I had a little extra money, I'm like, something's you know, that's for something. That's, that's, God has dedicated that money for something. I had an HVAC system. Go- I had like $6,000 from like a tax return. And I was like, oh, Wow. And then, like, my, my HAC went down. It was $6,000. It was, like, the right amount of money. God provides, and Jesus gave his life for that provision. The curse of I must work to feed myself is broken. It's broken. And so as Jesus is walking through grain fields and his disciples are picking kernels, they're not working. They did not cultivate that field. They did not grow that grain. They are enjoying the fruit that Jesus provides. 
And so to enter his rest, I mean, you just need to call out to him. You need to call out to him and kind of say, like, look, Jesus, take the driver's seat. I acknowledge I cannot rest on my own. I cannot achieve that on my own. But I believe that your work on the cross is sufficient. I, I trust that you did finish all the work that really matters. And ask, ask him to take over. All right, I'm going to close with this, just some practical steps. Right? We talk about next steps here, and I feel like I need to give you some, some practical steps. But the New Testament isn't particularly rigid on Sabbath. It's still important. It's still critically important. Uh, but some things have shifted from Old to New Testament. Saturday to Sunday, when Jesus was raised from the dead. But I'd say this, look, the biblical universal truths about healthy spiritual lives, you need to make some time to stop working for a day once a week and join in corporate worship. And there's times where, like, that's hard to do. Like, if you're a med student in in residency, you can't always do that. So, I mean, this is not... The law was provided for you. Sabbath was for you, not the other way around. But healthy spiritual life looks like trying to make that work taking a day off, corporate worship. Second thing is to read scripture and pray every day. Just setting aside that time to read and pray, to acknowledge that my frenetic energy isn't what makes the world go round, but it comes from the Lord. My provision comes from the Lord, not my efforts. And then thirdly, pray with others on a regular basis. That's it. Set aside a day, read and pray every day, and and set aside some time to pray with others. But ultimately, You can't do more in order to rest, right? You're not going to find rest by doing more. And Jesus has finished everything that really matters. And he reminds us, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And so as we turn now to communion, uh, and I'll introduce that, but, you know, as we take the the bread and the, the juice Think of Jesus' broken body, spilt blood, his life that he poured out in order to give you more, that you would have full life, not less. And so I'm going to read actually from 1 Corinthians 11, uh, where Paul says, talking about communion, he says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread... And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you that you sacrificed yourself that we might enter back into the Father's rest. And so, Lord, take the driver's seat of our lives, Lord. Take over, Lord, because honestly, our own hearts are relentless. (laughs) They are relentless in the desire, Lord, the burning desire, the worm that never dies. They don't let us rest. So, Lord, we lay them before you and we ask you to take over, to take over, Lord, that we might enter your rest. In Jesus' name, amen.